Hello, everyone. This is uh, Dan Bossy, host of the Old Folks Do Grain podcast. In this case, it's Old Men Do Grain. And I'm joined today with Jim Quinton. Jim is a longtime grain aficionado of the industry. Uh, Jim goes back to the early 1970s. And, you know, I've been in this business for 45 years. Jim supersedes me a little bit. But what Jim has seen in his career is absolutely phenomenal. Jim is uh, the crop scout that helps Ag Resource out in our tours every uh, August as we go out and try to survey the Illinois and Iowa soy and corn crops. So, Jim, welcome to the program. Um, hey, it's good to be here. We're glad to have you. Uh, your experience, you know, one thing I always marvel about is we're, as we're traveling and looking at fields and going backwards in time, you know, everybody that you've met along the way, just give me a brief synopsis or, you know, the listeners a brief synopsis of your career and, and, and take me to where you are today. Yeah, I'll try to be brief, but it's a big career. I think uh, I should say the corn blight summer of 1970 was kind of a background prep. I was not a crop scout. I was a senior at the University of Illinois in Ag Econ. And a year later, when I was employed by one of the big grain exporting firms, I was beginning to understand what that corn blight had really done to the markets and how the company really needed a very defensive crop scouting function, which I later worked into. And I did that basically through the 70s. And then uh, I moved back home to central Illinois. And in 1980, I started working for the Illinois Farm Bureau in their market advisory program. So there was a natural place for an awful lot of the crop scouting, yield estimating, that type of thing for those 10 years, all during the 1980s. And then I went back to grad school and got another degree in 1992. And uh, I've been doing somewhat independent crop information gathering since that time. Well, you go back and as I think of, you know, your your history and your, your career, I mean, uh, scouting crops for the old continental grain folks, and then, of course, training a guy named Rick Feltis, who this program knows and the industry knows very, very well. I think you even had Steve Freed along the way there. We talked to Steve on the tour. So, you know, your path crossed with a lot of interesting people and people that were very complimentary of all the work that you did in crop analysis. Oh, I, and I think one of the uh, one of the key experiences I had is when I got into the Farm Bureau during the 80s. Uh, stayed in touch a little bit with Rich and Steve, both who uh, were part of Continental Grain. After I left Chicago, they moved me up to Canada, and those guys were still in Chicago working the crop research at that time. But once I got to Farm Bureau, the way to really get crop information with market impact out to Farm Bureau members was to go on to public farm news broadcasts. And the farm broadcasters of the Midwest really beat a path to my door all during the 1980s. And that 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 kind of publicized stuff. That's also when I got to start the corn soy tour to replace the old Illinois corn soy tour, which is Illinois only. In the summer of 88, I enlarged it to include Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa. And it just grew from there. Well, that tour really, I, I, I could be wrong, if, if you will, Jim, but I believe that became the Pro Farmer Tour. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I went out to visit with him in the spring of 93 when I was finishing my uh, graduate degree thesis and explained to him that I just couldn't keep it going, but it'd 
sure be a shame if it died out because it really provided a mid-August review. And they took it and ran with it. And uh, Chip Flory was really a major thrust of that. And he and I had already talked two or three years running when he was participating in my old corn soy tour. There ought to be a way to get a lot more people involved. And that's that's what farm, uh, Pro Farmer has been able to do. They now take 16, 1,700 samples. Where back when I was doing it in the late in the eighties and the early nineties, I was only able to get maybe a hundred and fifty to two hundred samples. So that's how it grew. Well, as I think back about crop scouts, uh, and and I don't want to say it's a dying breed, but it's uh, satellites. Uh, the satellite people always think that they can replace you, and I have my doubts, mind you. But you know, the the two names that come forward is yourself and Hosey Harkness. I think those are the premier scouts that we're going to look back in history and say, you know what. These guys really served the industry, and they—they whether it was the corn blight of the early 70s or problems with mites in 90, I guess it was 2003, or any of the other uh, uh, droughts that came along. And, you know, maybe the one that really sticks in my head is when you discuss the 74 frost and freeze and what you thought about that and everything that happened. But, you know, the information that you provided to the grain industry has been second to none. We had some extreme seasons. Not every season, fortunately. But when an extreme season comes along, I submit that's when you learn the most about how crops develop and how the market is impacted. Those are experiences that are every one of them just good as gold. And and just r- refresh me a little bit on 74. You know, that was a year we had we had late plantings, a major drought, and then a frost. I mean, that was a trifecta in terms of of uh, let's call it uh, crop happenings. And, uh, you know, when that frost really happened, uh, I'm sure you were sent to the fields. Um, what did you tell people back then, or what did you really glean? Well, in that 74 season, it was a very late planting. About half the corn crop got planted before May 8th. And I'm just talking about the Corn Belt states. Um, and then that it had about a five or six week period of almost interrupted, uninterrupted rainfall. So it was like June 12th, 18th, 19th before corn planting resumed. Unfortunately, that put an awful lot of corn into pollinating in August. And in August, we had shut off the rain and, and the dry drought conditions had really taken a hold. I remember flying over eastern Nebraska and seeing field after field after field that was being cut for stover because there were no ears. That's how bad the drought of 74 turned out to be. It was equally dry in Indiana and counties in between. Well, then on September 18th, 19th, 20th, in through there, I was uh, advised by weather services that we had uh, subscribed to to get out to Minnesota and I'd see a major freeze on immature crops. And that's exactly what happened. I got out to, uh, I believe it was Welcome, Minnesota. And I uh, know it was uh, near there. And the uh, sweet corn company, Green Giant, was getting all of its kids out of high school that, that week. And they had to go salvage the sweet corn crop. You had about 24 hours to get sweet corn in the can before the enzymes broke it down. So they were salvaging. And that was just the tip of uh, the impact. When you got the field corn died on the stalk, it, you know, it, it, uh, the cells got ice crystals in them, they froze, killed the entire corn plant from top to bottom, and began to stink like silage after about a few days. The soybean crop looked horrible, turned the leaves black, but beans went ahead and filled out after the freeze. 
Now we had a lot of green tinted beans and we discounted the heck out of them that fall, worried that we'd have green problem, green tinting problems in the oil and everything else. Turned out not to be the case. You store the green beans and after three or four months, pull them out, they were all yellow. But those were learning experiences in the extreme year. Earl Butts was Secretary of Agriculture. He called it the triple whammy year. And that's pretty much what it was. Well, I tell you, that is. And I think a lot of us in this industry remember that year very well and the white uh, lawns that we all had as we walked out on that September morn. Um, you know, as, as you've have you scouted crops, Jim, and you think about, you know, the history, illustrious history that you've had, you know, you, you taught us that there's really three ingredients that go into making a soybean yield. Can you highlight the, the podcast, the listeners, what the important features are for soybean yields? Yeah, I uh I only got a C in the agronomy course I took as an undergraduate, but boy, once I got into the grain business, oh man, you can make up for lost time. Well, I was fortunate. <laughs> I got to talk with an agronomist from Purdue University, and he said, well, really there's three yield factors in soybeans, and they're just about each of them equal to the other. The first one is number pods. Now, number pods is closely associated with the number of nodes on the central stalk because you can't get pods where there are no nodes. So few nodes naturally limits pod numbers. We saw some of that in Iowa this year. Um, the second yield factor is the number of seeds per pod. We had a lot of improvements over the years with the plant's ability to retain the pods that it starts and to put extra seeds in the pods. So you had some three and four bean pods. Sometimes the number of three beans and higher pods are up over 70, 80% of all the pods in a plant. Ordinarily, it's about half. The third factor is seed weight or seed size. Uh, and that's quite variable. Uh, a good, healthy soybean crop is going to have a seed weight that's somewhere between 2,700 and 3,000 seeds per pound. And a drought uh, impacted soybean field is going to have five or even 6,000 seeds per pound, little BB seeds. The seed industry has to keep track of uh, seeds per pound so they can adjust planting rates the following spring. So those are the yield factors, number of pods, the number of seeds per pod, and the size of seeds. And there are, one offsets the other. Uh, in 2018, I think we had all three factors were elevated. That was a really good soybean year. Oh, that was a great soybean year. I remember it well. So, you know, this year we, 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 you know, from the pro farmer tour and what we saw, we may have a, a few less nodes and pods. How do you think this hot, dry weather, you know, when we look back in the record books from the middle of August, probably the middle of September, this will be one of the warmest and driest finishes that a Midwest crop will ever have. D I know, think it's bound to affect seed size. Uh, the number of pods that are on the plant, they're either a good number or a not good number, that's pretty well set in, in stone. Uh, the number of seeds per pod, yeah, you can't gain any seeds per pod after they're set, but you could lose a seed per pod, you know, turn a three bean pod into a two bean pod with stress, but then seed size. And that's that's going to be the uh, the key ingredient, which within about five days of harvest, you can hand harvest and get enough beans to get a stab on how many seeds it takes to make a pound. And and really, you outline between three and six thousand seeds per pound. I guess would be a range depending on which year it's a year like eighteen or a drought year, maybe like twelve. Uh, where do you you know? I don't know. Does anybody have any idea where we'll end up with seeds per pound this year? Is it somewhere in the middle of that? And 
I, I guess the next question is uh, that seed size, probably more so than corn, is a big deal. But you also talked over the years about how a plant, soybean plant, will uh, will uh, of course uh, shut down, but uh, whatever moisture is left in the plant goes to the seed. Yeah, the soybean is a very uh, what's the right word? It's a very uh, uh, resilient crop. The legumes generally are, and they uh, they really have a couple of unique characters, enzyme driven stages of production and that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm going to tell you I think we're we're in a pretty positive place uh, to finish the season, and I know the hundred degree heat we had last week really didn't affect the soybeans. It probably finished off some some corn, especially corn planted in May, but it it really uh, I don't think it had much impact on the beans. Uh, we're going to finish out better. I'm going to guess we're going to be around thirty two hundred seeds per pound as a rough guess. Okay. And the people I've had touch with, they think about that same thing. Well, that's really good to know because uh, we all worry about soybean seed size based on the finish that we're having. But if you're confident on that, I'm I'm with you as a, as a, as an analyst. And so we'll see how that all comes forward. Maybe the bigger risk would be on corn then, as it finishes, or if the corn plant drops an ear prematurely. What what does that mean for seed numbers on corn? And where where are the risks in the corn and uh, corn crop this year, Jim? Uh, the risk from here on out is really how corn finishes out. From the time it pollinates to the time it reaches physiological maturity, which we call black layer, that's about a 55 to 60 day window. Dry matter accumulates in the stored corn kernel at about 2% per day for about 40 of those 60 days. It starts off a little slower and it finishes pretty slow, like 1% per day for the first 10 and 1% per day for the last 10. So it's like a straight line. If we're cutting off the last 20 days of grain fill, that's a pretty definite drop in the dry matter that's accumulated in the kernels. So that, there's a key in that. And some of these fields are late enough, getting into late stress will affect how the grain fills. So, so do I need to think about this kind of like a hot frost? Uh, just stay with me on that for a minute, which is, you know, in a frost, you kind of end the corn's life cycle, the eardrops and things basically stop. You know, there's reports of some corn across the Midwest that are, that ears are dropping and, and I don't know if the heat had a play in it or it just ran out of moisture, but in, in Dent, if I look at some of the, uh, the materials, they talk about yield loss of 30% is, you know, is, is that right? I, I'm just struggling with all that. Oh, I think that's about right. If you had 20 days before the end of grain fill, when you got into stress, and whether it was a heat stress, a moisture stress, or a premature freeze, the result's the same. You don't get any dry matter. So the last 20 days of grain fill, 2% per day for 10 of those days, and 1% per day for the last 10 days, that's 30%. All right. That makes sense, I guess, as you think about it. I, I guess what you're saying then, if there's surprises on yields going forward, maybe it's more in corn than bean. Uh, just on the plant physiology and the bean plant being able to kind of hang on and then shut down uh, as the moisture within the stalk is exhausted. That's exactly right. Soybeans have that resilience, whether it's when they're young and still in a vegetative stage or whether they're in a reproductive stage or whether they're past reproductive stage and going into seed fill, soybeans are just very resilient. And matter of fact, 
some of the last dry matter accumulated in a soybean seed comes from the stems and leaves. It's not drawing anything out of the roots. It's transferring uh, nutrient storage from the stems and leaves into the beans. That's when the stems and leaves start changing color. They're, they're being transferred into, into the seed. So soybeans have that resilience factor that corn does not. You know, Jim, we uh, we were out in the fields, Illinois and Iowa, and I know you've done some work in Missouri, and then you got all the pro farmer tour from last week. You know, give me in a few words, or maybe from a broad brush perspective, what do you what do you see in all the numbers, all of the reports that you were able to gather statistically, encapsulates encapsulates for us maybe where you see the crops today. Uh, Let's t- look at corn first. Basically, the ear population is your is your primary yield factor. Uh, a low ear population, you can't offset that uh, enough with how the number of kernels or the kernel fill goes. And this year, we're probably right at about hundred uh, percent of what the ear populations were just even a, a few years ago. Uh, pretty close to thirty thousand for the seven states, the partial sampling done in seven states. So air population is basically pretty good. The number of kernels isn't quite as good as the last couple of years. The number of kernels per ear is, yeah, 590 to 600. Could have been 610 to 620 kernels per ear. So we're a little light on the kernels per ear. Some of that is attributed to some pollination uh, difficulty there in late June, early July before the rains really came through. Then when you get away from uh, the population and into those kernel numbers, you know, the, the, we're off about 5 to 10% in some important counties, counties with a high concentration of corn acreage. The uh, rest of the tour, though, uh, really focused on soybeans. And all it could be is a preliminary count that the pod numbers, they were off 5 or 10% in two or three of the states that got sampled. And they were up two or three percent on three or four of the states that got samples. They had mixed bag that way. All right, that's uh, that's. I, I think that's a ru- wonderful rundown. And uh, you know, I we always look to combine data for ground truth. Um, you know, is, is is a satellite ever going to replace a guy like you, where where they can understand a disease in the field or any of that? What, what's your thought process on that? I mean. I got a lot of people who always try to push at me now, of course, with AI, that they've got a new methodology and this one's right. Is anybody ever going to, how should I say it, to replace ground truth or or a guy like you and Hosey and uh, all you've done over the years? I think that's possible. And I think it's been uh, put off and put off the realization of that kind of accuracy. Uh, Back in the 70s, they started doing some infrared photography with low-flying aircraft in Wichita County, Kansas. It's out by the Colorado state line. And then we had some more ground truth and some satellite imagery uh, dealing with near-infrared in the 90s. In fact, some of us old crop scouts or some of the commercial people, we banded together in the 80s, and we all went to Washington and spent a couple of days with each other as a group. And one of the features there was looking at over the shoulder of the uh, satellite imagery folk in the USDA. Uh, In the corn soy tour, we had some of the USDA people come out and participate in the tour. And they wanted to go to field specific coordinates 
to get some ground truth for some specific sites they had identified with satellite imagery. So that's been in the works for now for, you know, 40, 45 years. And we still haven't arrived entirely, although we have improved. I, I know that Kevin Marcus and his efforts have uh, have really done made some strides in improving what they read. It doesn't really replace ground truth, but ground truth has helped them narrow it down some more. Well, we know we can't be in the fields every day, so the satellites have their place. I I just always wonder, you know, if you had a corn blight or gray leaf spot or some of the other foliage and other diseases that we've had. And I guess anthrax is becoming a problem across the Midwest now with a little SDS. SDS, you can probably catch from the satellites, but some of these other things, maybe you can. So I, that's I'll where bet, I, uh, I'll bet you could catch another southern corn leaf blight epidemic that affected only certain varieties. Because uh, flying over fields in 1970, you look down, you can tell right to the row where the variety changed. This variety was susceptible, and this one was not. So something like that's certainly possible. Another perspective on satellite imagery, uh, I've been to, to Europe and really uh, invited to look over their satellite imagery. They were using wheat near uh, Avignon, France, which is an experiment station. They would irrigate this tract and the next plot over they'd irrigated about 80 percent as much and the next one 60 and the next one 40 and they finally got down to a tract that got no irrigation well they'd fly the satellite over and they'd calibrate the infrared that helped them a bunch and the usda wants that ability for the countries that we can't get into for ground truth and that's where satellite imagery has gotten a little bit more of its resources pointed well, I couldn't agree. I, you know, where you can't get into China, uh, I don't know how many record crops in a row they've had. I think it's close to 16. We, we know that's probably not the case. But um, that being said, uh, we can believe a little bit of what's there and maybe the same for Russia. There's still disparity in what's going on with Russian wheel, yields, not only this year, but last year. So that's that's where you're right. That's where it really is helpful. Yeah, the eye in the sky fills in where where a, uh, shall we say, a crop scout can't quite go. So what's next for Jim Quinton? What's your plan, Jim, just for, you know, uh, the, the future years here? Are you going to stay involved or what's your plan? Oh, I plan to stay involved. Yes, I do. It's 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 kind of like some of these other uh, avocations that people have. It gets in your blood. I can't imagine not going into a wheat field every spring and looking around or going into corn or soybean field every summer. It's just you know, it, it's it's become second nature. You can walk in and you could begin to get some impressions without doing the first count. And then while you're there, you just well count this and count that. Next thing you know, you've got a pretty full fledged sample. No, I think you're right. My wife uh, and my family tell me that I've got a needle in my arm and I can't pull it out. And it's this agricultural industry that we really, really love. So. I get it, and I, I really want to thank you uh, for your time today. I don't know if you've got any other closing statements here, but uh, we really appreciate being on this podcast and sharing your long-term information and all you've done for agriculture over the years. Oh, I, I do think there's a place, particularly where uh, the information can be shared to people who want the information. And I, I do run across all kinds of personalities on all these farms around and every once in a while, there's somebody who says, boy, you, you can't possibly tell me what's in my field. And, uh, you know, they just, there's a little resistance. I think there's less and less of it now than there was 40, 50 years ago. 
Uh, I haven't been kicked out of quite so many trespass situations in recent years. Let's put it that way. Well, to those farmers that are out there listening, and I'm sure there's a bunch of them, if you uh, find a crop scout in your field, ask his name. And if it's Jim Quinton, leave him stay and have a wonderful discussion with him because you're going to learn more than those couple of years of corn that you'll be losing. Jim, thank you so much for your expertise and your years of dedication to agriculture. We've really appreciated having you on Old Folks Do Grain. And uh, uh, please come back again. We've really enjoyed our time with you. Always something cooking. Glad to be with you guys. Thanks again, Jim. And that concludes this week's Old Folks Do Grain. We want to appreciate and thanks uh, Jim Quinton for uh, his interview today. Uh, we're coming back next week with more of a committee approach. We'll have three or four grain analysts back discussing what they see as we head into the fall harvest time. Uh, Dan Bossy of Ag Resource Company, wishing you a great Labor Day weekend and a week next week. Old Folks Do Grain, thanks again to all of you and uh, back, back again in future. Thanks again.